0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 39 years we have engaged the community in reflection and dialogue on key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all. We invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Church for upcoming events. Information can be found at WestminsterForum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the Senior Minister of Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Kathleen Ballou is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Chicago, where her research and teaching have focused on militarization, violence, racism, and the aftermath of warfare in 20th century America. A graduate of the University of Washington with a degree in the history of ideas, She earned both her master and doctoral degrees in American Studies at Yale University. She's currently a research fellow at the Center for the Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University in California. Her recent book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, which has been featured on Fresh Air, Weekend Edition, and Frontlines Documenting Hate, explores the white power movement and its war against the state, from its roots in the Vietnam War to its collaboration with neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan, skinhead, and militia movements. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Kathleen Ballou.
1: Thank you very much. I'm honored to join you here and thank you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum for having me. This is for radio, but if I were to open with an image, what I would show you is a picture of the Alpha P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, behind the windshield of a police car with an American flag on top. And we see the wreckage of the bombing, and in front someone has written on the windshield, we will never forget. But in April, we marked another anniversary of that bombing, and I fear we've done exactly that. We have no popular understanding of the meaning of that devastation as part of an organized and decades-long social movement. So we have to begin a conversation about the white power movement with a sense of urgency, because churches are burning, and worshipers across faiths are being killed out of hate, and families are being separated by this ideology. This violence ripples freely from the fringe to the mainstream. So our discussion has to start with the idea that a history of hate could have some kind of utility in confronting the present and in imagining a different future. Because let me be perfectly clear, without a different response, the wave of white power violence in which we find ourselves will certainly crush beneath it the lives of more people, more families, and more communities. My book Bring the War Home is a history of this movement from its founding in the aftermath of the Vietnam War to the bombing of the Oklahoma City Building in 1995. It reveals a broad-based social movement united through narratives, symbols, and repertoires of warfare, this movement connected neo-Nazis, skinheads, and militiamen um, and Klansmen. It joined people in every region of the country across class backgrounds. It joined people in suburbs and cities and mountaintops. It brought together men and women and children, felons and religious leaders, high school dropouts and aerospace engineers, civilians and veterans, and active duty troops. It was a social movement that included a variety of strategies But its most significant legacies have evolved from a 1983 declaration of war when the whole movement declared war and became outright revolutionary um, intent on taking over the federal government, unseating the federal government, and targeting other enemies. So to bring this about, the movement employed two strategies that are still with us today. One of them is called leaderless resistance. Um, which is something we would understand now as simply cell-style terrorism, the idea that one or a few activists could work in cells in common purpose, but without direct communication with each other and without direct orders from leadership. The other strategy implemented in 1984 was the beginning of social network activism. Through a series of early computer message boards called Liberty Net, activists shared things like, Um, assassination lists and ideological tracts, but also things like recipes and personal ads and the other things that we now know bind people together in both common um, shared bonds and in political action. Now, leaderless resistance, cell-style terror in this movement, was implemented in large part to foil government surveillance and prosecution. But it has had a much more durable and catastrophic effect because what it has done is disappear this movement entirely. It's clouded our understanding of what this is. And what we have instead is a fiction of supposed lone wolf actors and errant madmen. The period that's at the heart of my study from 1983 to 1995 featured many episodes of white power coordination, social networking, and spectacular violence. Um, But at no point in this period was there a meaningful stop to this movement's organizing. Even in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people, including 19 children in the Murrah Building's Daycare Center, um, and which represents the largest deliberate mass casualty event in the United States between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Even in the aftermath of that event, there was no durable sense of public understanding that that action was motivated by a broad social movement and a broad political ideology. There was no meaningful response to strategies of surveillance, juror education, prosecutorial strategy, or military policy. The piecemeal responses in each of these areas utterly failed to contain the white power movement and we see this in part from the rise in militia activity even in the immediate aftermath of the horror of that bombing now let me just say for a minute um, my use of the phrase white power to describe what i'm talking about here uh, is meant precisely to recognize the revolutionary ideology put forward by this movement so what we're talking about is certainly a white supremacist project But um, this is too broad a category to describe the fringe movement I'm talking about. Many scholars have now documented the ways that white supremacy has structured American life, history, wealth, resources, health, and opportunity over time, and continues to do so in the present, and not only through individual prejudice, but also through these many resilient systems of power. Um, I also think that the phrase white nationalist works mostly to confuse this issue because the nation in white nationalism after 1983 is not the United States. The nation in white nationalism on the fringe is the Aryan nation. It's fundamentally opposed to the interests of the United States because it's oriented towards the overthrow of the federal government. They're imagining a transnational white Aryan nation that would unite white people all around the world in common cause and common purpose. When we learn about white power violence, we usually do do so through stories that are broken apart from one another. This is part of a broad public and sometimes journalistic and policy maker um, misunderstanding that urges us to categorize and break apart belief systems that people find fringe and shocking and oppositional. So what we most often see are things like stories about the Tree of Life synagogue attack as anti-Semitic, stories about the Christchurch shooting as anti-Muslim or anti-immigrant, uh, stories about the El Paso shooting as anti-Mexican or anti-Latino or anti-immigrant. Um, And they are, of course, those things. They are acts of anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant violence, but they are also actions motivated by a common ideology. So understood by uh, understanding and contextualizing these perpetrators, we can see these as part of the same story. Then we can begin to see this not as sort of a scattershot of lone wolf actions, but perhaps as part of a rising tide. If there's one thing you take away from this talk today, perhaps it's this the mass casualty event is not thought of as the end point in white power violence. Oklahoma City bombing was never going to be the end. It's meant to inspire other activists, bring other people into the movement, and spur others to um, continue in similar kinds of violent actions. Now. The white power groundswell that I'm talking about is certainly a fringe movement. I don't have numbers to give you for today because they don't exist. We haven't done a good job either at the governmental level or at the informal level in arranging data about this movement as it happens. Um, In the earlier period, I can give you a sense of what we're looking at and what we might likely be encountering today, but it'll take another 10 or 20 years, I think, before we have these kinds of numbers. Um, What we're talking about is a fringe movement, but one that's comparable in size with much better known things like the John Birch Society. Um, So membership numbers are also a terrible measure of this activity because groups have the interest of uh, destroying their their own membership lists and because after leaderless resistance these groups aren't trying to turn out 3,000 people for a public rally. They're trying to turn out 12 people who are willing to plant a bomb. Um, So these numbers go up and down and don't always forecast the impact of this violence. Nevertheless, if we're looking at the 1980s, we can think of this as a series of concentric circles. In the middle are around 25,000 hardcore activists. These are people who live and breathe the movement. They marry in the movement, they go to church in the movement, they share resources with each other, and they're deeply involved. Those are the people who can sometimes be um, taken down the course of leaderless resistance violent action. Outside of this is another 150 to 175,000 people. They don't, do, um, kind of, they don't have their whole life uh, absorbed into the movement in that way, but they do things like send financial contributions, buy and read the literature, um, and attend rallies and other movement events. Outside of that is another 450,000 people. They don't themselves subscribe to the newspapers, but they read them with regularity. The thing we have to think about for our present moment, I think, is the more diffuse circle, which is also larger around the outside of this where there are people who would never read something that says official newspaper of the Knights of the KKK, but who might agree with the ideas that are presented in it, especially if they come from someone trusted or through a social relationship. So this mode of organizing does two things. It pushes ideas from the radical, hardcore members in the middle out into the mainstream of American politics, and it pulls in people who can be radicalized and turned into soldiers for the movement. Why is so little public attention to this when we still have the John Birch Society um, as perhaps our our students can vouch for um, as kind of the signal uh, example given of fringe right-wing politics in the late 20th century United States? In fact, we knew about this as it happened. The episodes that I talk about in Bring the War Home appeared in major newspapers, on public access television, on talk shows and news morning shows, on the radio, how was white power activism so misunderstood by so many Americans such that it could resurface in our present moment? I argue that this comes down to three different things. The first is that change in organizing strategy to leaderless resistance in 1983 84. Um, this has really uh, changed the way that the movement works, it's disappeared our ability to understand it as a social movement with a coherent ideology. The second is a series of failed trials. Um, So the Department of Justice did attempt a large-scale trial of 13 white power leaders and activists in 1987-88 in Fort Smith, Arkansas, um, on charges that included seditious conspiracy. Um, This involved the fruits of several smaller sting operations by uh, ATF and FBI agents that had resulted in plea bargains, and several people were testifying against their fellow activists. in order to shorten their sentences, keep their families together, or assure their own protection. The descriptions of race war that they gave were vivid, things like 30 gallons of cyanide seized before it could be put in the public water supply of a major city, assassinations of a talk radio personality, fellow group members, and state troopers, a reign of paramilitary training, parading, and harassment of various enemies, and two huge laundry hampers of military-grade weapons pushed through the courtroom. Seditious conspiracy in that case was not only wholly evident, but it was also declared outright in the speeches and public writings of the people standing trial. It was outfitted with semi and fully automatic rifles, machine guns, rocket launchers, anti tank weapons, and grenades. Witnesses described how white power separatist compounds were manufacturing their own Claymore style landmines and training in urban warfare. But the trial failed. All 13 activists walked free. A historical analysis of this trial raises several questions about its efficacy. Two jurors had romantic pen pal relationships with defendants, and one of these couples married after the trial, casting doubt on the impartiality of the jury. Defendants representing themselves gave lengthy character testimony about their service in the Vietnam War and argued that those who have served their country during warfare could never possibly become seditious conspirators against it. Um, The historical record doesn't support this argument. We need look no farther than the example of Timothy McVeigh to see that. Large swaths of evidence were excluded as were all jurors familiar with white power activity in, in an area where it had been the subject of many local news stories. And one juror later spoke of a view, although common to the region at the time, that the Bible prohibited race mixing. Now, this is the third thing, the mechanism of forgetting. The sedition trial represented such a public embarrassment that along with the tragedies that were also public relations disasters at Waco and Ruby Ridge in the early 1990s, it would impact government policy and the investigative strategies used in Oklahoma City. The acquittals gave some agents at the FBI and some at the Department of Justice reluctance to attempt an investigative and prosecutorial strategy that would show that this bombing was the work of a movement. Indeed, the Bureau had institutionalized a policy to pursue only individual actors in white power violence with, quote, no attempt to tie individual crimes to a broader movement. This strategy not only worked to obscure the bombing as part of a social movement, but in the years following bomber Timothy McVeigh's execution, have effectively erased the action and the movement from popular understanding. Now, the evidence of McVeigh's involvement in this movement is too extensive to document for you at length today, but a few highlights include his a choice of building that had been a movement target since the early 1980s, the use and distribution of white power novel, The Turner Diaries, in formulating his plan for the bombing. McVeigh's involvement as a high level security guard in the, militia, the Michigan militia. His contacts and attempted contacts with the white power groups, Arizona Patriots, National Alliance, and the separatist compound at Elohim City. And the date of the bombing, not only on the anniversary of the Waco siege, but also on the planned execution date of a prominent white power activist who had once targeted, yes, the federal building in Oklahoma City. Additional evidence abounds, and this is not at the level of conspiracy theory. A simple social geography of McVeigh's life and movements and writings and ideology places him decisively in the white power movement and as a follower of the strategy of leaderless resistance. All of this is to say that white power activity in the United States is not new, nor has it been as shadowy as we may have imagined. It was known and then forgotten. And it is this process of subsuming the story, the process of forgetting, that directs our attention to this this wave of violence that we face in the current moment, Um, and to the parameters of our public debate and public memory around this issue, and the critical importance of recognizing this threat for what it is. Now, with my remaining time, I just want to speak briefly to the idea of futurity within this movement. Futurity is a historical kind of jargony word, just meaning the set of ways that people imagine the future within a certain ideology. How people think a future that they want could come to pass. Um, And we think a lot about limits on futurity because they shape historical action quite a bit. Um, The reason that the Turner Diaries has been so critical to this moment Um, And the Turner Diaries is, of course, a work of fiction, but one that sets out a roadmap to an all-white world achieved through racial violence. The reason it's been so critical is it lays out this imaginative future that activists in the movement believe could come about through leaderless resistance violence. This is one of the questions people often have about the movement is how could they possibly think they could do this? How could a fringe movement of such a small number of people think that they could declare guerrilla warfare on the United States, the most militarized superstate state in world history, and think they could win? The resonance of the Turner Diaries and the resonance of the strategies laid out in it, including guerrilla action and these acts of spectacle violence, are all about this larger campaign towards a white homeland or a white world, depending on the person you're talking to. Um, Which is to say that when we see actions like the Oklahoma City bombing or like the mass attacks that we've seen in the recent past, we have to read them not as single one-off events, but as political actions that are meant to inspire others and to bring people into this movement. And so I just want to leave you with the idea that this is an unfinished history, and I'm very happy to take your questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kathleen Belew. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is historian Kathleen Belew, and her book is Bring the War Home, White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, the sobering topic. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities on 91.1 FM, our online media sponsor, MinnPost, and the co-sponsor of today's forum, Hennepin County Library. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, October 22nd at noon when CNN's national security correspondent, Jim Shuto, will explore the topic inside China and Russia's secret operations. The topics are never ending, it seems, these days. (laughs) Visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for further information. And now, Kathleen Ballou, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present questions from our audience. You made just a, a... Passing reference to uh, the Vietnam War in your and your remarks in your book uh, delves quite uh, extensively into the connection between the aftermath of Vietnam and the people who came home from that uh, struggle in Southeast Asia and their involvement in a kind of a resurgence of white power uh, here in, the, in America. Could you speak more about that to us, please?
1: Sure. Um- And let me be clear right off the bat that what we're talking about is a very, very small percentage of returning veterans. We're not talking about a story that is representative of returning veterans as a population. But what we find is that every spike in vigilante violence aligns with the aftermath of warfare. So if you look at, for instance, the Ku Klux Klan, um, which has been through several ups and downs and several membership sort of generations They always align with the aftermath of warfare and they do that more consistently than they align with poverty With anti-immigration fervor with populist movements with many of the other predictors historians have commonly used to explain what's going on with clan activity um, What I found in the archive is that It turns out that all of American society becomes more violent in the aftermath of warfare. It's a phenomenon that goes across both genders. It goes across age groups, so it's not just people who were of the age to have served in a conflict. Um, So what's happening with the veterans coming home from Vietnam Um, is that that tiny percentage of them that are interested in this ideology are using the skills and tactical expertise that they learned for the war and training all of these other violent actors who have been radicalized in the United States. Um, So the Vietnam War serves that very instrumental purpose of simply creating a higher capacity for violence um, within this movement. It also created a very powerful narrative sort of anchor Um, in which activists that had been at odds with each other, like neo-Nazis and Klansmen, were able to come together after the war um, sort of out of a common sense of betrayal of government and a sense that that meant that the time for racial uh, combat had come.
0: I want to ask you a bit about the geography of, of white power. You you made reference to this as a, a movement all over the country. Is it really all over the country? In every state are there white power movements, including in Minnesota?
1: Yes. Um, we see this in <laughs> rural, suburban, and urban spaces. Um, And one of the interesting things about the movement that, um, especially in the early 80s of the period of my study, is that in every way but race, it's a very diverse movement. It cuts across social class. Um, It brings in people with very different kinds of white supremacist ideologies and with really different cultural forms. So if you imagine a sort of, you can imagine like a white supremacist housewife who lives in a white separatist compound in the Northwest and a skinhead woman who is going topless um, in bars in San Francisco. Those are very different presentations and those people often argue with each other quite a lot but they're coming into common purpose in this moment and there's a lot of thinking about uh, how leaders are going to open the doors for different kinds of constituencies to join this fight.
0: A number of questions coming forward from listeners uh, asking about the connection between the uh, uh, easy availability of guns in America, uh, as well as the NRA. Uh, what, what is the link between the reality of uh, the gun culture and NRA and white power?
1: So gun shows are one of the ways that this grou- these groups get their weapons, um, but certainly not the only one. This is all connected to the widespread availability of guns, but also to the history of increasingly um, increasingly violent technologies of killing, I guess is what I would say, the, the availability of weapons uh, of war, um, both through civilian channels and through illegal channels. So the people I write about are doing things like obtaining stolen military weapons and material from army posts and bases, um, tons of them, literal tons. Um, and going through military level, paramilitary training exercises. So the weaponry is sort of a civilian uh, problem and a military problem when we look at this movement.
0: The book describes uh, quite a bit of theft from military bases, uh, moving military equipment, not just guns, but uh, uh, heavy military equipment into these uh, camps. Um, Do you detect in your research any, here's the word, collusion? Uh, between uh, people in the military and, and uh white power movement?
1: So this is tricky because um, I think there are several different scales of this problem. Um, and I should say, too, this is a problem that got largely resolved within the military, as far as I know, by the 1987-88 moment. Um, but in that earlier period, what we see is sort of a mix of a few people who are in the white power movement and in the military at the same time. And just as a reminder, at this time, um, from 1983 forward, it is directly in, conf- in conflict with the oath of induction to be in the white power movement, because if you have pledged to you know, defend the nation from all enemies, foreign and domestic, um, you should not then also be an enemy domestic. Um, But the, um, so there are white power members in the military as active duty troops. There are also people who are current and former active duty troops who are not ideologically motivated, but are just motivated by profit to um, help these people out. And that's sort of just a, a criminal underside thing that collides with this movement. Then there is a system of inaction. And this is where I think we need to direct our attention. Um, It takes a very long time for the military to address this problem and I would think of this as sort of a incomplete response in the present. Because um, you know the Pentagon is torn in different directions here because on the one hand it wants to preserve freedom of speech, freedom of association and other constitutional rights for people serving the nation. On the other hand, as I said, it's directly in conflict with the military oath of induction to be in this particular movement. Um, so it's been a very long process. This stolen weapons thing was a big problem for the Pentagon in 1985, 86, 87. They don't ban participation until after the Oklahoma City bombing, so in 1996. Um, we still don't have a full sort of system for counting and monitoring extremist activity within the armed forces today.
0: The description you've offered today and in your book of the uh, organizational approach to uh, in in the white power movement to spread the movement sounds a a lot like what we read about in in, uh, radicalized movements elsewhere in the world, particularly uh, some of which we're fighting in in, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, sleeper cells for instance you didn't use that phrase we know what that is in that context what parallels are there between other radicalization movements and white power movement here
1: historians love this question because there's a really interesting thing that happens in the late 20th century where everyone starts to use strategies that are sort of out of the same tradition so the people I write about will tell you that what they're doing is counterinsurgency warfare that's taken from US Army manuals. Um, and that they are not inspired by leftist guerrilla warfare or Maoism or kind of a, um, you know, a leftist guerrilla mode. But the counterinsurgency manuals were inspired by those things. Um, and all of this develops in kind of this moment of counterinsurgency combat in the late 20th century. So, um, Similarly, there's an interesting thing that happens where if you live on a white separatist compound in the 80s, you have two likely sets of neighbors. One is farmers. And historians have done a lot of work about kind of documenting how the farms crisis of the 1980s did move some people into the white power movement. But the other set of likely neighbors is hippies. And we haven't really studied this much, but interestingly, in my materials, I see a lot of things about macrobiotic diet and traditional midwifery and anti-fluoridation and paganism and other issues like that that are more commonly associated with the radical left. Um, So one of the interesting things is just a late 20th century historical phenomenon where the two sides of the political spectrum, which we usually think of on a flat line, right, with the left, the center, and the right, it's actually more of a circle where the two edges of the fringe have more in common with each other sometimes than they do with the center.
0: Uh, could you comment about uh, the anti-fascist movement that uh, is uh, confronting the white power movement in many places, we think of in Portland, Oregon, for instance. Uh, are they? Uh, would you put them in the same sort of category as radicalized groups with a, with a movement uh, ideology?
1: I would not. Um, the anti-fascist movement uh, does not have the decades-long history of organizing um, in, in the mode that I'm talking about when I'm looking at white power. Um, I also think it's just important to think about the visualized outcome put forward by each of these groups. One of them, um, the white power movement, is interested in overthrowing the country and annihilating people of color. Um, and the other one is interested in stopping them from doing that. Um, I think that our public response has to be measured based on these outcomes, and not just kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Now, I will say, the historical record also gives us a lot of caution for adopting violent confrontation when trying to organize against the white power movement, and many times that has put activists in the crosshairs and resulted in fatalities, and I think people um, would be, perhaps, it might, I, I worry about, about that very much and I think that um, violence is probably a, well, I, I, I don't think violence is a good organizational strategy for this.
0: Uh, you refer to uh, the difference between white power and, and uh, white supremacy and you acknowledge that white supremacy, white privilege uh, has been a part of our nation's history from the earliest times and you want to differentiate that from these violent um, ideological movements. Have those movements emerged from uh, the the understanding of white privilege or white supremacy earlier in our history? And and are you documenting just to the 80s, or can we see back further than that? And what do you think, as an historian, is the connection between our nation's uh, history of white supremacy and the white power movement? That's my question. Sorry.
1: (laughs) This is a complex question. So I think um, part of the work that history can do is understanding all of the different things that we might include when we think about white supremacy. Um, Many people sort of carry around an idea that white supremacy is simply individual belief Um, and has to do with whether someone is racist toward other people or harbors stereotypical views of other people um, or wants not to associate with people who are different. Um, That is one part of white supremacy. But if you study the history of the United States, there are a whole lot of other parts of white supremacy, including the way that life and health and legal systems and incarceration and policing, and I could go on and on and on, have different outcomes based on race that have to do with our complex history as a nation. The United States is one of the only countries that has that kind of a history that has not had some kind of process, some kind of public process to address reconciliation and think about how we as a community might confront and deal with that history. And I actually came to this project through wanting to do something about truth and reconciliation commissions. One of the only ones of these that has happened in the United States is the Greensboro TRC that concluded in 2005 around a neo-Nazi and Klan shooting of leftist demonstrators um, in Greensboro in 1979. Um, Those conversations can do so much, and part of it has to do with simply within a community thinking about and examining the systems that create inequality and looking at what people might do about it on the local and national level. Um, it also has to do with facing the more difficult stories of our nation's history and doing that in community together.
0: I want to uh, ask one of the listeners' question is, could, could you go a little deeper on the difference between white privilege and white power?
1: Oh, sure. Um, So white privilege, I think scholars would define as the invisible set of benefits um, that somebody has simply by appearing white in society. Um, White power is a group of fringe activists who are interested in overthrowing the nation and annihilating annihilating people of color.
0: Are there certain characteristics, one of our listeners asks, Certain characteristics of a person that, that could be identified that would uh, draw them into a movement like the White Power Movement?
1: That is a really interesting question. Um, this is where I have to be a historian and tell you I don't study that particular thing, but there's great scholarship, and there's also good work on that coming from people who have left the movement and who are helping others to do so, um, and also coming from watchdog organizations who have done the very difficult work of confronting and monitoring this movement um, all along.
0: Have you met with some of those who have left the white power movement and what did you learn from them?
1: Um, I have spoken to them, but I have not gotten to meet them yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the I think the, the takeaway message that I've seen going around is that the, um, you know, I take that back. I have met some of them. They are brave and um, they're brave, brave people. I think the takeaway message is that The exit out for people who are in these groups is not through confrontation, but through human connection um, and through community building and resources. So I think another thing that could happen at the community level to really address this problem is a network of information for parents, for teachers, for librarians, um, for neighbors, so that we have a mechanism to reach out to people who seem to be going down that, this road long before we are at kind of the point of no return. Um, significantly, some other countries, um, I've learned from colleagues, do have that kind of a reporting mechanism so that if you need to report activity like this, your first stop isn't the police or the FBI, which is sort of a bell you can't ring if you're the parent of a child who's in the situation. Um, And there are many more things like that that we could explore together.
0: Uh, Are you confident now that law enforcement is changing its approach to responding to white power militancy in, in in our country?
1: I think we are at an, at an encouraging place. There was a DHS report that came out last week that showed, um, that offers a new definition and includes this kind of violence in the definition of domestic terrorism. Um, that lets people do different kinds of charges, different kinds of um, legal responses and, and, and lots different investigatory uh, resources. So that's a step in the right direction. I think that um, the other thing that people will have to do is grapple with the fact that this is a transnational movement. Um, so when we're thinking about, about how to respond, it's it's becoming more and more a global question.
0: When I want to ask uh, from several listeners a question about white power groups in our area here. Someone says, I was living in North Dakota at the time of Standing Rock. There was a group called Tiger Swan that was active then. Is that part of the white power movement? And do you know the names of white power movement um, groups in our in our state? So
1: I am a historian. My archive ends in 1996. So everything that I can tell you with the certainty that I've been talking about today ends in 1996. The problem is that we don't have the information for the present moment that lets me work with it the way that I would need to to understand at that level of detail what we have now. Because what I'm looking at are things that are Going to be available in 10 or 20 years like court testimony and plea deal agreements and declassified documents and things like this Um, there are watchdog groups that do keep tabs on all of this um, and have databases where you can go and check out graffiti and symbols and logos and um, speech and particulars of who's in your area Um, and doing that I think is always a good idea. And the other thing I would just say is for future historians writing this book in 20 years about our present moment, um, do report things even if they're small things because they go into databases, people can track activity that way Um, and it is uh, sort of helpful for people down the road.
0: Morris Dees of the Southern Poverty Law Center spoke here at a forum many years ago and I remember, uh, this is in reference to Minnesota white power groups, he actually uh, suggested I not be up on the stage with him in case something happened because he said there are so many groups in Minnesota they might be here today. But uh, so the Southern Poverty Law Center has a particular approach to uh, addressing the white power movement and its radical uh, groups around the country. Can you describe that and, and uh, uh, what, what do you think the effectiveness of that is?
1: Well. Many of the watchdog groups, including the SPLC, have been SPLC in the headlines. Is Southern the Southern Poverty, Poverty Law Center. Center. Yeah. Have been in the headlines for reasons that have nothing to do with their monitoring capacity. So I'll just set out by saying what I'm going to talk about right now is just the, monitor, the monitoring capacity. We can talk about the rest of it later if people really want to. Um, there are many of these groups, um, like... Um, I mean, the ADL, the SPLC, um, there are a number of smaller ones, there are a number of newer ones. What they're doing is aggregating data and collecting information. Um, The reason that we have watchdogs doing that is because the government hasn't been. Um, The FBI has uh, kind of overwhelmingly put its resources elsewhere, first um, monitoring the left in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then monitoring Islamic terror after 9-11. Because we haven't had a coherent government response that has been aggregating that data, regardless of what you think about various political um, kind of motivations of the watchdog groups at different moments, um, that's the data we have. Um, They do an excellent job of collecting and aggregating that information. it would be great if that also was being done by the government, but we are not in that position.
0: A number of questions from students in the audience. Uh, that I'm 16 and I'm worried this will never get better. Do you think it ever will?
1: I hope so. <laughs> um, here's the thing. During the period that I study, There was never a conversation like this people didn't didn't register it as a social problem they didn't you know come together in this kind of a big public legal conversation about this is a problem what can we do i find tremendous hope in that because simply recognizing it for what it is is exactly what this movement would like not to happen this movement counts on our ignorance and our inattention the other thing i find hope in is that We have these communities that are impacted by acts of mass violence by the white power movement, who without this framework of understanding would suffer that in isolation. But understanding what this is can bring together a new kind of coalition uh, politics between places like Pittsburgh and El Paso, places like Christchurch and Norway, right? That kind of human connection I find hopeful.
0: Another question from a student in the audience. How can teenagers such as myself and my peers fight for a future without white power? What can young people do?
1: I'm so moved by that question. Honestly, learning about it is such a huge and important first step. Talking to other people about it is a huge thing. Talking to your local newspaper when they run stories that that seem to be putting for, forward this idea of the lone wolf gun, gunman. Talk to your parents, talk to your teachers. Get it in your history curriculum. Um, and I, the work of learning about it is, is endless and it's a rabbit hole. And if you keep going down that rabbit hole and wind up in grad school, call me and I'll tell you more. <laughs> um, but for now, I mean, Consuming um, the information about it, I think, is really a powerful tool for dismantling
0: it. Another question from a student. What do you think our president and the executive branch could be doing better to address violence perpetrated by white power? Gotta love Minnesota students to get right down to it. (laughs)
1: I think first of all, we have a really interesting counter example looking at New Zealand after the Christchurch attacks where we had a public figure immediately condemn the attacks, immediately start a process of reconciliation, immediately start a practice of community standards, immediately go after the weapons used in the attack, and immediately do all of that without heightening a surveillance state mentality. Um, Whether we have the capacity to respond like that here, I don't know. I think it would help to recognize this as domestic terror, which it seems like we're on the road to doing that. Um, I think it would help to think about it as a transnational movement, which would mean that we can use resources designated and earmarked for foreign terrorist activities, I'm doing air quotes right now, um, for this. Because when we're looking at people who are inspired by events in Norway and New Zealand, this is no longer You know a domestic problem plain and simple um and then i think you know we need a broad public conversation about what this is and a broad process of understanding and reconciliation efforts Um, the government can help with a lot of that without intruding right like they can earmark grant money for doing that at the local level they can create resources they can aggregate data there's all kinds of stuff the government could be doing to solve this problem
0: Here's another question from a student drilling down on, the, on that topic. Uh, is the current administration doing anything in your judgment to encourage this movement?
1: So if you look at the history of the KKK, the one that most people are familiar with and i'm hoping is still in your high school textbook is the one in the 1920s did you guys learn about that one you friends you folks learn about that one sorry can can i can you just do hands and then i'll tell the people on the radio oh we're not learning about the Klan at all this is a problem okay so there have been a lot of eras of the Klan. there was one after the civil war which was started by confederate veterans there was one after world war I, which was huge four million people of the state of Indiana, and a ton of public offices. Um, And then there was one that rose up to oppose the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, and then there was the white power movement. So those are the big waves I'm talking about. That big Klan in the 1920s had a very different character than what I've been talking about today because it was very public facing. Um, that's the one where people were wearing robes and hoods and marching through the streets of Washington, D.C., but with their faces uncovered. It was completely open and accepted and straight within um, kind of the realm of public culture. Um, And the thing that I teach my students about that is that what the Klan is interested in and what the white power movement is sort of doing, taking a page out of that tactical playbook, is using whatever the prevailing public sentiment and trends are to opportunistically recruit and move people toward violence. So when we see moments when that is allowed to come into the public square, it will come into the public square. Um, These activists are opportunistic, and they are interested in using whatever they can to get this message out there. Um, The other thing to remember is that that operates at two different levels. One is that um, we usually think of the Klan as anti-black and anti-Semitic. Um, The Klan in the 20s was anti-black and anti-Semitic, but it was also anti-Mexican on the border. It was anti-labor in the Northwest where there was a lot of unionization. It was anti-immigrant in the Northeast where there were a lot of arriving immigrants. And it was anti-Catholic in Indiana because Notre Dame University was in Indiana. Um, So what the Klan has always done is figure out how to use prevailing public tension to mobilize people to violence. And then the other part is that it does that using trends, and I'm not trying to be glib about this, but if you look at, say, a woman's dress robes from the 1920s, you'll see that they were very fashion forward for the 1920s. Like they're slim cut, she's showing some ankle, it's very like, it's fashion motivated. Similarly, the reason that people in my period are wearing camo fatigues is partly out of tactical necessity, but it's also because it was cool to wear camo fatigues in the 80s. Lots of people were doing that who weren't affiliated with this in the 80s. So what we have to watch for in the present are the ways that local tensions are being mobilized and the ways that prevailing culture is opening the door to this activity. And I think both of those things are um, coming from the current administration.
0: The... uh... The term inspirational, you've used uh, uh, quite a bit. Most of us don't find these events inspirational. So what is the proper response you would advise us to offer when these events happen, these uh, horrific killings?
1: I think the reaction that many people have when we confront an act of mass violence is to sort of grieve and to throw up our hands and say, what can we do? This is impossible it's no longer enough to do that they're happening too frequently they're a hallmark of our society we now live in a country where we have people who have survived two mass attacks Um, and here i'm talking not necessarily about the white power movement but the problem of mass violence more broadly i think that these attacks call us to work we have to understand what they are and what they mean they aren't all part of the white power movement there are some that are clearly not related to a politics and an ideology but when they are there's work to do to explain and understand and figure out what we can do to prevent more in the future.
0: We have just a short time for a final question. Uh, This is a direct assault on our democracy, these kinds of movements. Uh, Are you confident our democracy will survive these attacks on it?
1: I am hopeful because of rooms like this one. Um, And I am hopeful because of students like these.
0: Thank you. Kathleen Ballou.